Let's uh, thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this last of Bible studies, and we are grateful for the time we've had with John and his understanding of uh, our assurance and our confidence that we have in your son. We'd ask that you would uh, bring us through to the end uh, in a satisfying way. In your son's name, amen. Well, this is, as I mentioned, a, uh, the last week of the epistle of 1 John, um, you know, the first epistle of John, since it wouldn't be a 1 John. Well, that doesn't really matter, I guess. Um, and uh, the pattern that John has taken, he maintains up to the very end of the book. I mean, it's this uh, somewhat convoluted paragraphs which rest inside themselves in some sort of definitional way, if that makes any sense at all, um, that you, you sort of have to break apart the sentences and go, okay, what's, where's the definition? What, what is the structure of the thought? A person can easily read through 1 John for devotional purposes and feel really devout at the end because it says such, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, God is love. You, you get an awful lot of loves going by you in the single sentence. But John is, isn't just rambling in his old age. He's He's um, laying out a, um, the importance, the centerpiece, the importance of the life. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it's good to think in terms of what isn't said in the New Testament, what isn't stressed, what, what the apostles didn't decide to write a whole book about. Um, they didn't write a whole book about how to run a church. They didn't write a whole book about any liturgy whatsoever, high or low or indifferent. They didn't um, write any book of theology, uh, any structured systematic. Um, and John here, like you go to, you go to Paul and, and Galatians and you have the struggle against Judaizing and legalism. Um, uh, you have uh, uh, Certain places, like like with Christ, and since Christ makes this commandment that John has been stressing, uh, that you love one another, that the greatest it stemmed off the greatest commandments: you shall love your Lord, your God; you shall love your neighbor as yourself; and inside the church, you shall love your brother. That's that love is the centerpiece, and he has been <clears throat> using the term "born of God." Uh, well, all the way back to John 3, or John, Gospel of John chapter 1, uh, those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. And that's sort of what has made it a major impact on John, and he, in the first verse here, he addresses that relationship. We've been told that you can't love God or claim without being a liar if you don't love your brother. Um, he said that at the beginning of the book, he said that in chapter 4, um, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Now, on these assurance points, none of them get to be taken as, I mentioned before, um, uh, universals and complete and of themselves, because you know there are a lot of people who would say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, 
and like I mentioned last week, it's saying, not, it's saying Jesus is the Christ, contradistinctive to Jesus is not the Christ. Um, it's, it's an affirmation on that one point. That one point must be made. John is dealing with, I mentioned earlier in the Bible study, Serinthus, who was a proto-Gnostic and had denied the coming of Christ in the flesh, that there was uh, any reality to Jesus' physical being. And John has been stressing that, that this is our faith, this is where, and that's why the book begins with that which we have seen, which we have witnessed, we, have, we testify to it, we were there. We, um, um, and so, believing that Jesus is the Christ, is a child of God, is a necessary but not sufficient. You know that distinction? A necessary condition but not a sufficient condition. Uh, I can't eliminate it, but it doesn't, it doesn't t say the whole thing. It doesn't say all that I must believe. <coughs> Even about the words that are right there. Jesus being the Christ does not tell me everything. I have to get John's view of who Jesus is, and I've got to get the, John's view of what the Christ means. Uh, the expected Messiah. And everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Now, suffice earlier we could have said, you know, if you don't love your brother, you can't love God. There's hypocrisy. Okay, that's, that is uh, what we naturally come to. We don't want to say, oh yeah, I can't love God who I have not seen if I don't love my brother who I have seen. Um, just, just in terms of being honorable, that sounds, that sounds uh, uh, like an unpleasant person. But this is the actual reason. Um, you're a child of God, and if you love the parent, you would love the child. That's what the why you must love your brother is because you're of the same parentage. There's not just you want to be uh, consistent with your loves or consistent. It's good to be consistent with your ethics, but there's a re rationale behind the love for brothers. Um, the love for brothers is distinct from. Um, your love for your, you know, just the Gentiles. Love for the Gentiles is because you're nice. And it's also true that you're nice to your brothers, but you also have the benefit of having that family affection uh, of the Christian. But he's laying out the whys and wherefores. There's a connection uh, through these next few sentences that you, you need to follow. By this we know that we love the children of God. Okay, you, if you're a child of God, and you love God, you'll love the child. That means you will love those that are your brothers. How do we know that we love the brothers? Well, by this, when we love God. Okay, because that makes it an automatic. And keep his commandments, which gives the, you might say, the, the inertial cause of your love for, for, between your love for God and your brother, the inertial thing is keeping his commandments. Because that is what carries my love from God for God down into my actions and, and, and what I do to my brother. Because I love God and obey his commandments. And then he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. It's, it's that tight a relationship. It's that just like the other things are, we, we, we have to understand that these assurances, they are automatics. If you stand in the light, these will be true. 
They don't have to be worked at. They're true. They, they exist. They, they are the state of things. And if I do love, not only will I and keep his commandments, matter of fact, says John, they're synonymous. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, I was talking to somebody yesterday, I think it was the discussion group after the reading last night, uh, we were talking about why um, some of the unbelievers don't turn or pursue God out of sloth and how they, they look at Christianity, look at the commandments and think, oh, I'll have to do all these uptight things. I'll have to be, I'll have to rewrite my life. I'll have to be good and all that. Look at the Ten Commandments. They're bad enough, let alone all the other commandments and go to church and stuff. They, th they see the commandments. And we sometimes feel that when we see we love God and obey his commandments. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments. Realizing in the new covenant that love is the fulfillment of the law in you. It is the, 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 the keeping of the imperatives of God out of love. That, that I, don't, I don't have the, the hard deed I must do uh, to prove something, it's connected to love, not uh, piety. It's not connected to devotion. It's connected to love. It's connected to a, um, an, a state of opinion. Whatever your level of emotion about the state of opinion, the state of opinion you have for God is best described as love, and it has a motivating, I want to do the best for whether I'm loving God or doing the best for my brother or for the Gentile that's around me, I, the, the, my life looks to virtue for something to do. I look to the... Uh, and we don't even have to consider the law. We were talking about the uh, comment uh, out of Christ and Augustine and then to Rabelais last night about... Um, have charity... It was a Latin quote in, in Lewis. Have charity and do what you will. And a lot of people go, oh, how could you say such a thing? Well, that's the new covenant. Have charity, have love, and do what you want. We'll trust the love to make what you want what it ought to be. You know, that's the, the, what you love. That, that you love means that what, how you act the rest of the sentence here, rest of the verse here, and his commandments are not burdensome. I, you know, I don't, the Lord himself says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a yoke, there's something you're drawing, there's a burden, but it ain't a burden in the sense that I know the difference having made the mistake in Scotland, having planned the trip with my dear wife down to the very, um, the very itemized. I knew where everything was. This was prior to GPSs and things. I had considered maps. I had knew everywhere we were going and we flew into Edinburgh Airport and we had to take a bus into, into the bus station downtown Edinburgh and then take our luggage over to our hotel, which looked to me on the map never having been in Edinburgh, a matter of a short walk of maybe, I would say, uh, four or five blocks. Not bad, we had wheels on our luggage. 
except between the bus station and Taylor's Hall, which was this old 1600s hotel on the other side of the Prince's uh, Mile. Um, the Prince's Mile is a road that runs down the, the edge of a ridge on which the castle is. And the, down here on the bottom lands on one side was the bus station, and down here on the bottom lands on the other was the hotel. <laughs> and it was a medieval walk between here and there. And our burden was not light. It was everything we had taken to Europe. On wheels, yes, but I couldn't take it all, and my dear wife, once more in our life, um, was required to sweat some. Versus the, the week after that, you know, carry little fanny packs. That's Christianity. Little tourist fanny packs. And uh, a light bird, not the hauling the luggage over the Prince's Mile. Um, yeah, Christian could quote me on that. That's, um, but but because the burdensome is what what makes the law what makes virtue burdensome? You don't want to do it. When you're throwing a party for your kid and you like your kid, you know, birthday party or something like that. But if you're at odds with your kid, you don't want to throw them a birthday party. All the work that went into it and. And if you don't like the person you're doing something for, it's burdensome. If you do, if you love, it isn't. The love takes away the burden. The love makes all sorts of very difficult things very easy to carry. He lets you know what that, I mean, that's just an obvious, uh, he's not saying that here, he's putting that out as an aside, that love being the motivation of your virtue, uh, the virtue doesn't carry as much weight. But he also gives you the reason in verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Remember, this is all, don't ever, if you ever hear a verse out of 1 John, because they hold it, let me look it up, because I want to be sure that the flow of thought goes through it. He's been telling you that you've got this relationship, and the relationship is the reason you love the child. And we know that this is happening when we are keeping the commandments of our Lord, and the commandments are not hard to keep because they are love. Um, and this victory, the, the um, I had a old friend, uh, Chuck, uh, who had been a headmaster in various classical schools around the country, but he didn't. He always made fun of my sense, my my comments as being too triumphal. Everything was too triumphalist. That that victory. That's what we want. We want overcoming. We want. And whoever is one of God overcomes the world. This is look at this other word. Overcome. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. So, he's pointing first to your need. You've been told throughout this book. You need to love your brother. That is the commandment. That is what we're going to be measuring your relationship with God on the basis of. It is natural that you do so. It is easy that you do so. It is in keeping with your love for God that you would do so. And this victory rests. So how do I, how do I drum up love for God? So much love that I would do what he wants because I want to that would include my treatment of my brother and the Gentiles and everyone else. 
How do I drum that up? Well, the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And that's why in the book as well, he has been stressing false teachers, the spirit of Antichrist, he who declares that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. These are things that are what you believe. What, what testimony did you hear and what did you grant was so? Um, I just had uh, Rachel and Heather read it also. You may have read it too. The Obstinacy of Belief by Lewis where he has that great definition of belief is the psychological exclusion of doubt but not the logical exclusion of dispute. Um, that's where we have to be. Faith, that this is the way I see things. This is what I believe to be true, and nothing else is true in that regard. In that, uh, at that point, regarding those things, nothing else is true. This is true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the world, incarnate, in the flesh. That's what incarnate means. It means in flesh. Carne is meat. means in meated. Uh, Jesus Christ came in corporeal substance and died. Those are the, that's, a, that's a big claim. That's what overcomes the world. That's what the, the message you heard, if believed, puts you in relationship with God, gets this great benefit from God, that you might say, well, why would you be wondering about loving him? What, what, what is your definition of God? What is your definition of your faith that your love for God is somehow lacking? You know, you, if you ever received a gift of substantial value from someone who, and that person in every respect, had treated you with absolute grace and gave you a great gift, and you found yourself just not liking that person one morning, You'd go and put yourself in for a psychological exam. You would just have something's wrong with me that I don't like my grandma. <laughs> like that. I don't. I don't like this person who has done nothing but good. If I believe that it really was the problem, is a lot of people who are in the faith and in the church aren't in the faith and aren't in the church. They don't believe. Who is it that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse five. Now, Hebrews, I have a little quote here over on the side, Hebrews 11, 1, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've been going with, through that portion at the uh, Easter on Thomas. Blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed. That's the conviction of things not seen. And when someone affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus has come in the flesh, all these necessary conditions to the Christian system of belief. If you do, um, the, well, there would be certainly a natural human response, if not a spiritual one, because of the spiritual indwelling you receive. You didn't just go, oh, what a good thing was done for me, I like him, I like God. But I'm also indwelt with the Holy Spirit, where one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, first on the list, love. So if, I've been, if I actually crossed from death to life, if I got regenerated, new birth, that new birth was sort of replete with love. And John wants you to look at yourself and say, well, are you? Because that's where your assurance lies. That's where your confidence lies. 
So he's on the subject. He has come out of this love out of chapter 4 <coughs> on the necessity to be loving your brother and not <coughs> uh, trying to say you love God who you have not seen. He has defined things out and he's worked his way around to that which you believe. Then he gets into verse 6 and following um, on the nature of the faith, on the nature of our our reasons for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, it's easy for us 2,000 years into what we call Christendom. <clears throat> everybody in Erex say Christmas tree, and everybody, you know, knows what a Bible is at least. Uh, we don't, we're not struggling with the storyline. We're not struggling with the claim. This is not a world empty of Christianity in which Judaism is very small and disliked, empty of Christianity, all the world has gone after false gods, and your religion is just getting off the ground, and not well-liked, and being persecuted, and all the rest. Now you're talking to people who are looking at what the testimony is. This is he, speaking of Christ, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. Eh? Ooh? Water and the blood. Um, now in John 3, it says, you know, anyone who's not born of water and spirit cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's different. Water and spirit, not water and blood. Um... There's those who are baptized in water and baptized with fire. Okay, water and fire. Water and blood. What's, what's the deal with this water and blood? It doesn't help that the King James, ad, King James adds a verse right here. Um, I have it here on the side. It says in the brackets, King James, KJV includes verse 7. For there are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. A very tidy Trinitarian verse that didn't exist <laughs> before the Middle Ages. Uh, it, uh, um, uh, you won't find it in your Bibles unless mm -hmm. you have a King James. Mine says the spirit, water, and blood. Right. In verse 8, these yeah. three witnesses, the spirit, water, and blood. That's what goes on to say after that. The King James has this. Most of the current translations will break... Um, I think they broke off part of 6 into 7 to create a 7th verse because they've eliminated this fake verse out of the King James Bible. It, it worked, it's called the Yohanin Kama. Um, and it is basically too clean a statement of the Trinity in a passage that's not about the Trinity. And it's, it was added... Uh, it was in the Vulgate Latin versions that... Uh, Erasmus was translating into a Greek text for a standardized Greek text in the 1500s. And he knew that this didn't exist before the oh, 7th century, you know. Uh, nobody quoted it back in the early fathers, even when they were quoting the verses right around it and they were arguing for the Trinity, they never quoted that verse. And none of the early Greek texts have it. And 
the Catholic Church, and so he didn't include it in his Greek text. All Hades broke loose because they always liked having this perfect verse for the Trinity. And they said, he said, I'm not putting it in unless I have a Greek text for it. Well, marvel of marvels, they found one. Found one. And Erasmus put it in because he gave his word that he would. But he put a footnote down at the bottom that suggested that he didn't believe that this was a real text that it came out of. You know, so, and, but because Erasmus's Greek text became the grounding text of Greek that the King James was translated out of, it entered the King James, and then because the King James Bible was ever from 1611 to 1950, it was the Bible. Uh, so, uh, it's not a real verse, but it doesn't help that that's thrown in there. But I want to tell you, so in your future reading, somebody throws that at you. I've never seen that before. It's not in your Bible. It's uh, and it was added. So we have to go back and say, okay, we're not dealing with the Trinity, we're dealing with this water and blood. Then he adds the Spirit as a witness. Okay? The Spirit is a witness because the Spirit is true. So there are three witnesses, verse 8, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born witness to his Son. So, three things. Spirit, water, blood, you say, I don't know what really any of the three are. <laughs> the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the water and the blood. Well, that's why I have John, Gospel of John, verse chapter 19, at the death of Christ. John standing there at the foot of the cross. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. John draws attention in his gospel to the moment of Christ's death where it's proved that he's dead. Water and blood coming out of him when they run the spear into him. And he points it, points it out and then says, I'm writing, I saw it. Just like he says at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What we saw, which we observed, which we witnessed, this is, this is what it is. And the argument that's on their plate, did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Did Jesus, was Jesus Christ, um, some would say, you get the still same things today, you get those, okay, God isn't Jesus, he was just a man that the, the God principle rested on, uh, or he wasn't man at all and just appeared for a little bit and only appeared, apparently died, but didn't really... Um, even down to the Da Vinci Code sort of things where he survived the crucifixion and went on to raise kids in France. Um, you know, the, the people, the, the death of, of the God and his resurrection is central to our faith. The witnesses he brings up are the Spirit and his testimony of the water and the blood. That's why he says, if we receive the testimony of men, He's just given his testimony. I was there. I was at the foot of the cross. I saw him killed. And he's writing that back in John so that you might believe. Because I'm telling you the truth. He said, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne witness to his son. The word testimony Witness. The word witness here in some of it, the same word as the word testimony. This is the witness of God that he's one to witness to his son. 
the testimony is such an odd word anyway. We, we, we testify. We, we bear witness. We, we, we stand by something. We, we claim that something happened when we bear witness. He who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Now this is where we, we, we listen to the testimony of John regarding the death of Christ. We also have the Spirit is also there bearing witness. The Spirit is the truth. And the Spirit, and I'm, I'm making a jump here because it doesn't say the Spirit in you bears testimony, but it says he who believes in the Son of God, remember those who believe, the first one, he's a child of God. Um, we have overcome the world, we who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Those of us that believe have a testimony in ourselves. Um, you could point to it and say, okay, um, that's the testimony of the Spirit. In other words, you can't really tell another person that it's true on the basis of that testimony because they can't witness the internal testimony. The, the LDS missionaries always try to do this. Um, they have a burning in their bosom, you know. You're, they, they advocate that you pray a prayer and read the Book of Mormon and you'll get the testimony that it's true. Well, as you, the, the fact that it's not true is, is problematic, but, but it's, not a, it's not an errant notion. Your internal testimony is crucial for you. This is so that you would know. Not that other people... This is not about evangelism. This is about you knowing. If you believe, you have the testimony in yourself. Now, another person might say, well, since the testimony is defined um, down in verse 11, I go on to read, he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born to his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So either the content of the testimony is in you, claimed in faith, or the spirit witness, mentioned back in verse 7, is in you, bearing witness. But either way, however you take the verse, the testimony of content, the content of the testimony, or the, the effect of the testimony, the, the, the effect of the belief bringing you truly into the sonship of God, um, that is, that is uh, the thing that is going to um, uh, shore you up, I guess, is the... Uh, um, when he says this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son, that is, in some way, that is what I've got to put my hand to and get a grip on. That's when I get assurance of going that I have eternal life and I have life. And it's in Jesus Christ. That's what my faith is about that. My faith is not about, uh, I really should be pointing at this most of all because it's my faith that causes me to overcome the world. It's my faith that brings me in a state of relationship with God that allows love to transpire and fulfill the virtues. I don't have to... I, I can look at my doctrine, I, which is encouraged earlier in the book. I can look at my morals. That's encouraged in the book. But it'd be most important, I would think, to look at your faith. To say, do I have this Hebrews 11 sort of notion of this? Is this, 
what's true? Um, we talked about last week. Last week we mentioned the uh, the island um, illustration, or was it two weeks ago? Where um, um, Wilson's um, the um, the yes, she is. the is oh. oh, for those of you listening on the CD, if anyone ever does, uh, someone's answering the phone. That's the, um, the, the center, centering ourselves on oh, the island illustration. The, if I had no one else to please but me and God, would my would I look at this and go, yeah, this is true. This is this is what the heavens above me, everything in my life uh, are about. Um, is it's what I believe. Um, he who has the sun has life. Uh, Meredith called and Brooke had her baby early. Oh. And Daniel delivered it in their bathroom. <gasps> well, he's a doctor. Okay. Now that's all the CD. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's enough. It is. Oh, boy. They don't know yet. He's not a good doctor. (laughs) He who has the Son, verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. And again, it's a statement of condition. The statement of not not wish fulfillment. It's not, uh, if I I try or think hard enough about this, I'll, I'll feel like I have life. You have life. You don't have life. You don't have the Son. You don't have life. You have the Son. You have life. Do you have the Son? Are you in the testimony? Are the things that were declared from the outside to you, the gospel that was preached to you by people who witnessed it, and thankfully, because the wonder of the Bible, we've got here 2,000 years later, the witnesses of the people who saw it happen related to us, testifying to us that it was true. We didn't make it up in the... 1200s, like that verse. <laughs> verse 13. Now, going having gone through the book up to this key verse, I mentioned this book, the verse at the beginning of the Bible study, I believe, 513. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Just like the people who got into all sorts of arguments over the Trinity and had to fake a verse that said the Trinity outright and these three are one. Get around that, you Arians. The real point of the book was to say something outright, clearly, about what the point is. Which is, you believe, you need to know that you have eternal life. That's what I'm writing to you for. Now, in that confidence... There is a connection, uh, your overcoming of sin, not just overcoming what's in the world, um, love for the world, not love for the Father, that was back in chapter 2, but also active, positive love, positive command-keeping by you because of the change that is wrought in you. All of this 
comes from that confident state you exist in. There's much in uh, Christian circles these days about, um, and the natural looking at the state of the church, about brokenness. And everybody is running around being all broken and being humble in that brokenness. And I think there are probably some very devout people who are fixated on that. Rather than saying, okay, so you're broken, fix it, get it right, be in victory, live in victory, live in confidence, live in, because that's when positive love, positive command keeping, positive um, enjoyed service for the kingdom comes to you. And this is the confidence, verse 14, we have, which we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So not only, not only does my own piety, my own goodness, my own virtue get touched by it, not only is my protection from the world present in it, in an overcoming sort of way, um, not only am I protected in what I, who I listen to and, and my alertness to the things of God are built on a solid foundation in this faith and the effects of this faith, but my prayers. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. You probably noticed already we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. Because it's, it's, it's not merely, we're not in this to continue living for ourselves. We're, we're in this to live for God. We're in this to live for his kingdom. Our, our hearts have been changed. We're, we're not keeping something back and so many people have God over here and us over here and he's my God and yes, I will pray to him and when I want something bad enough, I'll go pray to him for it and hopefully he'll give me what I want rather than saying, you know, his kingdom I'm in service to and I want to pray for things that I think will benefit his kingdom, things according to his will. When we think of the prayer Christ prayed in the garden, when you're as righteous as Jesus Christ, and you're about to do the best thing ever done, and you st- you don't want to do it, you'd like to get out of it, and he says, not my will, but thine be done. He's praying this way. He is giving himself over. He says, I want, what I want the most is that your kingdom be advanced in me and in my circumstance. That's more than, more than anything more than the health of my great aunt who's dying of cancer, more than my own life, more than my getting this job. I want, more than that, your kingdom. Confidence we have in him. We know that he hears us. And we know that we've obtained the requests made of him. Now, he's he's stepping into a, a, you might say, a, a a step further than he's been going on about how you could be sure, how you could be sure, how you could be sure. He tidied that up in verse 13 and, and, and stepped away into this, this place of practical Christianity and prayer. And he's giving you, like he has done with all the rest, kind of a rule, a kind of a, 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 a principle, principle regarding your prayer. And then he gives you an example of what's outside his will. It's a weird passage. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. 
There is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. Yeah. What? Well, you've just been told, pray according to his will. Pray according to his will. Now, part and parcel of this is John's not a fool. He knew back earlier in chapter 2 that, that uh, I'm writing these things to you, my brethren, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He knows on one hand he's trying to make triumphant, victorious, overcoming, confident, assured believers who live in accordance with all that God has provided. And he also knows that as a B plan, plan B, that he is going to need to deal with their failures. But he doesn't ever want to talk down the triumph or talk down like it's not, that's not normal. That's why he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So that doesn't happen. But it's also, it's not just you confess your sins. There are the saints around you. Part of this brotherly love is praying for the sins of your fellow brothers, your fellow Christians. Sins that are, he said, according to what's the will of God. Now, the example in this case, when you're expressing your love for the brother by praying for their life, don't pray for them if the sin is unto death. That's what the word mortal means here. That means it's not like a Catholic mortal, medial, that kind of distinction, but mortal, unto death. Some of the translations has, have that instead of mortal. Sin unto death. Not that that helps much in understanding. You could, and I don't want to put anything else in the passage, uh, but people could have anything from the rain. Well, death, was it spiritual death? In other words, did the person kill themselves spiritually again by this kind of sin? If you're a Nazarene or someone who believes you could lose your salvation, that might be the direction people go. Others might say it's a capital crime, like literally, literally, he's a murderer. Uh, my dad has ministered to a number of murderers in jail. You know, they should take what's coming to them. You shouldn't pray that they get out of it. That would be one example, you know, application. Um, but he's basically saying you're preserving, by your prayer, you're preserving the life of the person whose sin threatened their life whether it's the spiritual life or the physical life. Deal with that as you will. I thought of the passage in James. Down here, James 5 at the bottom of the column, James 5, 14. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. That our love for the brethren, our valuation of holiness, remember how I said that you're either in the light or you're getting back into the light. We'll add the, the love of the brothers to that. You're in the light and you have a brother who's out of the light and they're struggling in their weakness. The word sick here 
doesn't necessarily mean physical sick. It could be spirit, spiritual sickness, uh, weakness. And that they cause the elders and they pray over him. And, it, and he's, if, he's conf- if he's committed any sins, he's forgiven in that joint um, praying over them. So it may be the same sort of thing that John's talking about. You're praying for the life of the person to be restored if their sin isn't so bad. He does not give us any hint as to what's on the list, what's not. He even makes it seem like they're not even going to know. Because <laughs> he said, I, there is sin which is mortal. I don't pray for it. You know, and there's sin that is not mortal. You know, so, uh, but that's, again, according to the will of God. You don't, here is the will of God told you in the next, in the next verse of, about your prayers, what you pray for. Now, at this point, Again, the breakdown of the book outside of its context wreaks havoc because the next verse, verse 18, We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And that verse has sent many pietists careening off into, okay, if I believe that Jesus is the Christ, I'm a child of God, I'm born of God. And they either create a sanctification, second work of grace, in the Wesleyan tradition where you don't sin anymore, or all Christians can't sin. Any real Christian doesn't sin. If you sin, you're not a Christian. Uh, there were the early Catholic notions that once you were baptized, if you sinned after that, you lost your, you know, no hope for you. Uh, you have all sorts of ways of looking at this, that anyone born of God does not sin. Now, I don't know. You say, Evan, are you going to try to get around this passage? There it says it right there in front of you. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps him. In my version, it capitalizes the he there, making it seem like Christ. He who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. It might be Christ. But here's the problem. The evil demon context, the previous verse. We just heard how you were told to pray for a brother whose sin was not unto death. And God would give him life for the person whose sin was not mortal. The previous verse. So it's not saying, now at this point, I'm not an NIV fan, but I have the NIV on the side. NIV, verse 18, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Now, not only does it say, it says continue in sin. I don't know Greek. I don't know why they think that, whether it's context or whether it's the word or there's something in it. I I don't know, but I I give you that. But just that reading alone... What did King James say to you? Oh, I, I didn't. Um, they keep adding verses in the King James. You know, but, um, but don't just think that the previous verse keeps you from going off the rails in verse 18 with an extreme, it's impossible for Christians to sin position. It's not just there to do that. It's the topic. 
if you think the topic is about um, exquisitely about your level of virtue, even adjusted by the previous three verses, you're still wrong. If the NIV lets you know what you were doing in the previous three verses, you were praying for someone in sin whose sin was not mortal and God would grant them life. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. We know that's the, 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 the state of the, the brother in sin doesn't continue there. The others born of God, you, praying for him, keeps him from that. Keeps him safe. Remember, God will grant him life for those whose sin is not mortal. He's still talking about this prayer. He's still talking about you stepping in to someone's life who's in sin, who's a Christian brother, and lifting them up. It doesn't say about whether it's the James, as you, he calls, he wants the help of the brothers to pray for him. I don't know if this allows you to pray without the guy knowing. Maybe. I, I, it doesn't make any rules, so I just go ahead where your, your heart leads you on that, but but you can claim that I can preserve something and the evil one does not harm him, keeps him safe. So that, if it's still about that subject of that prayer for the sinful brother, it is, it gives us more information. Uh, the evil one cannot harm him. And I said, okay, that would give me more information about what this mortal sin is, this death is. Um, um, it doesn't, not much more, but it, 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 it casts it in a certain light that the death is um, uh, the vindictiveness of the evil one, that somehow, either spiritually or physically, the vindictiveness or the claim, like Satan and the archangel Michael fighting over the body of Moses uh, in, in Jude, where, uh, in the assumption of Moses, where that occurred, it was Satan had claimed that he had a right to Moses because Moses was a murderer. You know, he, was, he was laying claim. Uh, he's the accuser, and, uh, and uh, the archangel Michael uh, dealt with that. But... Is it that sort of thing, or is it the tie-in between Satan and Rome and the persecution the Christians were under by Rome? It's speculation after a certain point. But don't separate that verse either into an extreme piety verse, because that's corrected by the content of the preceding three, and read out of those three verses where you're praying for the brother uh, in love to preserve their life, whatever life means and avoiding praying for it where it doesn't, isn't, it's unto death. Um, and keep it all part of the same thing, that you're keeping one another, that you're not just protecting yourself, your assurance is not alone. This whole book has largely been individualistic. It's been, you know, other than your love for the brothers, your love for the brother is a test on you. Where are you in, in regard to it? It's not talking about bigger picture thing you read in, in uh, Colossians or Philippians about the love the church has for one another. 
This is about you individual. Do you love them? Do you love your brother? And here is the stepping away into your, um, your activity in the body of faith to help out someone, whatever the help is and however it's accomplished. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world is of the power of the evil one. That lets you know where the team divisions are. We've got the whole world, those that love the world, the things in the world, um, and we overcome the world. The word overcome, I, I didn't mention this back at the beginning, the word overcome is used heavily in G Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, same author, and he talks about overcoming in terms of standing under persecution, even under death. So, we know that John has a pretty cohesive theology. You can take a look at that, at how it's used in Revelation, um, if you'd like. And so, that distinction here in his latter part of his life, we are of God, the whole world is of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's sort of the, the great thematic, ta-da, that's what we're about. Not only I'm writing this that you would know this, but this is, it's sort of a benediction. We know that these things are true. We know that who we, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. I, what, where, where is your confidence? How confident is it? Is it, is the lack, is the doubting resting on real objections that John would make about you? Um, are you the person that needs the prayers of the other believers to preserve your life? That'd be an encouraging thing to have the saints praying for your walk. Not just that good things would happen to you, but medicinally. Then he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? Well, again, we're so used to pulling out verses, and that just looks like a, what the, what? Was there a, what? Was added. Yeah, uh, uh, King James, maybe. Um, well, you say, well, does it make sense? I mean, other than it's good advice, yeah, keep yourself in mind. Keep yourself. He has been arguing for the true God and the eternal life. That's that first phrase right before. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. It makes perfectly good sense. Don't believe the false. Keep yourself from that which isn't the message you heard from the beginning. What you heard from the beginning, that Christ died. Those are the central story of your faith. Don't let that, the claims of that gospel drift at all. Keep yourself from idols It's a, you know, I think, I'd always looked at this verse as a, a non sequitur. It seemed like, okay, why is he talking about idolatry here? 
And I think it was only because after going through 1 John a number of times over the past five weeks, uh, just having the flow of his thought being represented as, um, as complex but direct and definitional. He doesn't drop the ball. He's not like Paul. Paul will drop it, you know, He'll get halfway through a thought, run on sentence, start another subject. It didn't ever get to the direct object. You know, it never gets there. John is defining his terms. John is tying very nice knots, but you're supposed to uh, almost see it as very poetic prose. And so when he says, this is the true God and eternal life, little children, keep yourself from idols. If you let your mind go through the passage and say, I'm not going to break it apart, it all ties together. So you go for the true God, the true Christ, the true life, and uh, watch out for false ones. Well, that is the end of the hour, magically. And um, um, uh, it's the end of the book. And the end of the semester. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Thank you very much for your um, work of your apostle here. Uh, greet him for us. Uh, th thank him. Uh, we were blessed by it. We'd ask that we'd continue to look at what he said. In your son's name, amen.